also to those of you who are uh, watching online. Uh, Merry Christmas. I am wearing two items of clothing that I was given for Christmas. I do have some, some new Santa socks that I was given, and this was actually an early Christmas present. Anybody else wearing a Christmas present today? Just me? Okay. I, um, welcome to episode 16 of The Plan. This is the sermon series that we're going through this year. Um, starting in September with Genesis, we're going through the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end. And we are synchronizing up with the resurrection on Easter, which means that on Christmas Sunday, we are in, or the day after Christmas, we are in 1 Samuel 15, which is where you'd expect to be today, right? Um, we've been telling this whole story, and if you haven't been here with us, the, the story that we've been finding that links all of the, the different individual stories of the Bible together is this. It is, the, uh, the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. He said that at every stage in the Bible, that is what God is working to accomplish in the world. So he created the world, and he put people in it, and he told them to rule on his behalf, and then he came down to live with them on the seventh day. And then we messed it up. At the end of the Bible, we see that the way the story ends is with a new earth full of God's people that are reigning on God's behalf, and God lives there with them. So we are supposed to end where we began, and the story of the Bible is the story of how God gets us from the way we've messed up the world to restoring us to that plan. And at this stage in the story, God is working through the nation of Israel. They are his chosen people, and he's given them one particular place on the earth to rule over, and he's given them the law of Moses so that they can rule over it on his behalf so they know how to do that. And he lives among them there in the promised land. And so the idea is that everyone can, all the nations can look at Israel and see what makes them different, and that will point them towards God, and there is, that reveals God to a world that has forgotten him. Now, at this point, Israel's doing better than they have in the past. They did very badly in Judges, but uh, after they lost the ark, they, they repented and they started to do better. And then, as the prophet Samuel's ministry started to end, they asked for a king. And that's what we talked about last week. About they, they asked for a king because it was, basically, it was too much work to try and follow God directly. So how about we'll follow this human being, and that human being can worry about following God and being faithful and waiting and making all the right judgments, and we'll just follow the person in front of us. And at the end of that sermon, we found out that that's, not only was that not God's intention, uh, but that they are now tied to a king who is not the kind of king God wanted. God gave them the kind of king they wanted. And so we saw the, some troubling signs at the end of the last sermon about where things were headed. And so as we go into our opening passage today, that's what we're, we're seeing is we're seeing Saul show his true colors and we're finding out what kind of king the Israelites really have. So as I read our opening uh, passage, I want you to remember this is how we keep our bearings in a story in terms of how it connects with the plan. Watch for who's the story about where is their home, how can they meet with God, and what does God tell them to do? For a lot of these now, you'll, have, you'll remember them from previous sermons, but this passage will update us in a couple of ways. So Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to, appoint, to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. 
Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. All right, so who is the story about? At this point, the story is about Saul and the Israelites. See, this is the thing about a king is that, uh, anointed by God, is that now that means when God has things for the Israelites to do, he's going to go through Saul. Saul is the appointed leader. And so uh, Samuel, even the prophet of God, doesn't go to the people. He goes to Saul, who is responsible for leading the Israelites and following God's plan. Where is their home? We've been calling it the land of Israel. At this point, we might start to call it the kingdom of Israel. There's a major transition that's going to happen in the rule of the first three kings, where we're going to go from being a loose gathering of tribes into a solid kingdom, and we're in the early stages of that transition. How can they meet with God? Now, this was not addressed in the passage, so we have to remember what uh, the stage that we're at. Normally, they would be able to meet with God in the tabernacle. The ark, you go to the tabernacle, you worship there, and that's where the presence of God is. And they seem to still be doing that at this stage in the story. However, there is one issue that's going on, which is that the ark is still in exile. Remember, they, they gambled with the ark, and they tried to use it to force God to win a battle for them, and it got captured by the Philistines. And then God liberated the ark, but when he sent it back, he entrusted it to uh, Gibeonites, who are not Israelites. So at this point, the ark is not in the tabernacle, which means there's some sense that God's presence has not really been restored there. So even though they're worshiping there, they seem to still be in this kind of trial separation with God. There's still barriers there so that they, they aren't fully connected with God the way they're meant to be. Finally, what did God tell them to do? The instructions he was given were to totally destroy the Amalekites. Now, this is actually referencing back to an, an, an order that God gave them in Deuteronomy. He said, don't forget what the Amalekites did to you. Because the Amalekites basically, they fought against the Israelites on their way to the promised land, but they also like, attacked their, them as they were traveling and picked off stragglers and were just relentless in in attacking them. And so in Deuteronomy, God says, don't forget this because we need to set that right. And so when you get into the land, I'm going to have you, um, I'm going to have you totally destroy them. Now, if you were not here for the sermon on Joshua, I would encourage you to, and and you're interested in, in the concept that I'm talking about right now, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon because we really delve into this idea, if you remember, of total destruction That word being translated as totally destroy does not actually mean totally destroy. It means devote to God. And it's the same thing that God told them to do to the Canaanites. What it means is, normally, uh, for us, warfare isn't really an economic thing anymore. I mean, you know, we talk about the, the companies that have contracts to make weapons making money, but, but you don't really, like, we don't pillage anymore. At least we're not supposed to, right? That's, that's not how we justify battles. But back then, pillaging was the main way you paid for war, and it was part of the reason you went to war. So when God sends them to war to fight for his purposes, like in this case, it's meant to punish the Amalekites for what they had done to Israel and the way they opposed God's plan, uh, to totally destroy means that you devote it all to God. It basically means you don't keep anything for yourself. That's the important point. Even the exaggerated language about killing everyone, we'll find out whenever it says that they're supposed to kill everyone, their descendants are still around later because they didn't actually kill everyone. It's this exaggerated language to say, you, when you win this battle, don't take anything for yourself. 
Okay, so really what he's saying is defeat the Amalekites, destroy their power, and don't take any plunder. Okay? So, this was the big issue that caused Israel to falter in the book of Judges, if you remember. When God told them to do this in Canaan, to, uh, with the Canaanites, to push out the Canaanites, and they gave up partway through, and that is really where things started to, to go downward. And so now this is a pretty significant test. Are they going to do any better now that they have a king? Is the monarchy, the way they asked for it, really going to be an improvement? Well, let's find out. So Saul goes and he defeats them, but total destruction, this Hiram uh, is the word behind that, it refers to what they do after the battle. And here's what Saul does after the battle. Saul and the army spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. We'll pause there. Now, when you understand what Hiram is about, what totally destru- total destruction or Hiram means, you see how big of a deal this is. The whole point of these instructions is you're not supposed to keep anything for yourself because God gave them the battle, gave them the victory to fulfill his purposes. They're not supposed to profit from that. And so when Saul spares everything of value and only destroys the things that are worthless, that they can't resell or keep and get prestige from, it's, it's the exact opposite of what God told them to do. It is a complete flagrant disregard for what God has said. And they're basically treating this as a battle for their own, for their own uh, profit. So God is upset about this, and he tells Samuel, I regret making Saul king. And Samuel goes to confront Saul, and he says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and, and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul's response is really interesting. Watch the movements that he make. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. So first he claims that he did it and then just kind of sneaks in the fact that he spared the king, who's the most valuable captive that, you, that there was. But he claims, no, I did it. And he says, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So the second, first move is denial. The second move is blame. The soldiers were the ones who kept all the animals. And the third move is appeasement. He says, yeah, but the only reason we kept them was because we were going to sacrifice them to God, which would be kind of like getting caught going through your parents' uh, wallet in December and saying, oh, I was, just, I was just taking money to buy you a Christmas present. Right? Like you're robbing them to give them something just to give it back and to try to get credit for that. And so the moves that he's making are, are, he's trying to avoid responsibility. And you can even see at the end, whose God is he? Whose God does he refer to? Your God. Because he's, he's, there's major problems with Saul's attitude at this point. And he's, he's trying to evade responsibility. Now I want you to remember that because that's going to be really important next week when we get to, the, to um, a, another story as we compare reactions when people are confronted with sin. But for now, what we're going to look at is how Saul re- Samuel responds. Samuel responds with a poem, and whenever a prophet speaks in poetry, you really pay attention, okay? It's really important if it's in poetry. He says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Samuel says, look, God can't be bribed, right? God doesn't need your animals. He doesn't need your sacrifices. What he wants is your obedience. That's actually the point. You can't pay off God and the fact, uh, pay off your disobedience by making sacrifices. And you're responsible for all of God's people. You're supposed to do this better than anybody. And so he says, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Saul rejected God's command. So God rejected Saul as king. Saul is, still has the throne, he still has the crown, but he is no longer God's chosen ruler, and we're actually going to see God uh, take back his spirit. Um, and so Saul is no longer the chosen person that God has uh, for, the, for the throne. Now last week we saw that, that Samuel has already mentioned God has someone else in mind to take Saul's place. Samuel uh, warned Saul of this in, in chapter 13. And so as we go into the chapter 16, God starts moving that plan and putting that plan in motion. And so he talks to Samuel. Samuel's depressed and he says, how long are you going to cry over Saul? Just get up and go to Bethlehem. It's a little town. You may have heard of it recently. And uh, I'm going to have you anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king. So he goes to Jesse's house. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth. You may remember her from a few weeks ago. And he goes in and he meets their, their firstborn son, Eliab. And this is how he reacts. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord, proving that even prophets can be slow to learn a lesson. And the reason I say that is because if you remember last week, what was the big thing that made everybody like Saul, including Samuel? What was the thing that drew people to Saul? He was tall, he was handsome, and he was rich. He was exactly what they expected in terms of his appearance and his position. And so everybody thought Saul was the right guy because he looked good. Even Samuel responded that way. And so Samuel, Saul's not working out, so Samuel goes to anoint a new person, and he's still using the same criteria. Hey, that guy's tall and impressive. He must be the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what he's saying is, I'm going to, I'm going to choose someone that has the kind of character that I want. I'm not looking for a person with a particular height. I'm looking for a person with a particular character. So Samuel asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep, meaning that he's so young that they figured he, it wasn't even worth calling him out of the fields for, for the meeting. But they call him, and uh, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, the point that's being made in this story is actually not really about looks. This is not meant to be an, an ugly duckling kind of story because you'll notice that David is handsome. In fact, David is, is, uh, turns out to be quite the ladies' man. It's going to cause some problems. But he's, he's handsome, he's inspiring, people really like him. But the point is that he is not the most impressive and he's not the one that fits their criteria of what, they, what Samuel was expecting to see in a person. And so what that means is that this is God's choice, not Samuel's choice. 
That's what's being emphasized here. Last time, God gave them Saul because Saul was what the people wanted. This time, God has chosen the person he wants. So he's made it a point that this was not who Samuel would have picked if he'd been left to his own devices. So God chose David to be the next king because he had the character God wanted. That's the important part, that God chose David. And that's really important for the way the author puts the rest of the story together because now we have... Two people, we have Saul, who was who the people wanted and not who God wanted, and we have David, who was the person God wanted, and the story is going to continually compare them to each other. The rest of their stories are going to intertwine, and what's happening in this book is because we realize David is the one God wants, we're supposed to be watching for what makes David different, because we should want to learn what God wants in his people, and so we should be watching to say, why did God choose David? This also means that we should edit our coordinates a bit, because now we find out that this story is not just about David or Saul and the Israelites, it's also about David, because David is now anointed. He is chosen by God to be a leader. And so he is a, a core part of the story now. So David has been anointed, and now we're going we're gonna to kind of skim over his career a bit and to watch for his character traits. Now, um, David... Um, So David um, went on a, he had this, this uh, confrontation with uh, a rather tall Philistine that you may have heard of, and uh, it's a very, one of the most famous stories that we tell in the Bible, and yet it's actually not, uh, it, it's actually not one, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, So he has this confrontation with, with, Saul, with, with a really tall Philistine. And the point of that story is actually about the reason why he chooses to fight. Because Saul, as we've just seen, he goes out to fight for himself. And the really important detail for us to keep in mind as David goes out to fight this really tall, tall Philistine is he says this to, to, um, to Saul. He says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. So what Saul, what what David says here is that he he wants to fight Goliath because Goliath has uh, insulted God, because Goliath is opposing God's plan. And so he's fighting on God's behalf, not his own. And it says, after this, after, you know, when you kill a giant, you generally get promoted. And so he begins fighting for Saul. And it says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and David's officers as well. Okay, you may wonder why I started stumbling there. It appears that this is an older version of the sermon <laughs> that doesn't have some of the right verses. So I'm going to need to pivot real quick. Okay, so, so what I wanted to say here is as we follow what David is doing, uh, as we follow his career, he actually, yeah, <laughs> I apologize. This has never happened. All right, so we're actually going to go to a different place in the story because we didn't need to talk about Goliath at all. What I wanted to talk about is the, what happens to 
to David and Saul after God chooses David, right? When he chooses David, it says in the very, at the very end of his story, of, of the story of him being anointed, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So the Spirit of the Lord descends on David. In the very next verse, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So David gets the Spirit of God. Saul loses the Spirit of God. And now as Saul goes into his career, just imagine what this is like being a person you, have, you know you have been explicitly chosen by God, right? You know that you are supposed to be the next king. You know that the current king has been rejected by God. You've pretty much given, been given the most certain promise anybody has been given that your career is going to go well. So the question is, how are you going to behave? How are you going to act? How are you going to um, navigate your career? Because I don't know about you, but that would go to my head, right? That would definitely go to my head. And I would have a very hard time respecting people who claim to have authority over me. Right? That's, just, that's just the temptation is that, oh, I know I'm God's chosen person, so I, nobody can tell me what to do. I don't need to bother with other people. And yet what happens is Saul has lost, he's, he's lost the spirit of God. He's being tormented by an evil spirit because of the bad decisions he's made. And they look for someone who will be willing to play music for him to soothe him. And who steps up to do it? Uh, it It says in verse 21 of chapter 16, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Whenever the Spirit of God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So David becomes a servant of Saul. And he's he's taking good... This is a very, like... Uh, an intimate way to take care of someone. This is not just like he's hanging out in the background and begrudgingly doing what the king says until he gets his crown. He is actively ministering to Saul. And this is then when the, when the whole thing with Goliath happens, and that gets David a promotion, and so he starts fighting, and he fights, for, he fights ultimately for God, but he fights also for Saul. You know, he, he becomes a commander in Saul's army. And so so what we're seeing here is that, yeah, see, David became a loyal servant of King Saul, who is his rival for the throne. Those are your, your lines. He became a loyal servant of King Saul, his rival for the throne. So Saul, it, Saul is the only person in David's way, and it would be really easy for him to completely disregard Saul, and yet he he is a genuinely faithful servant, and the, the Bible takes special care in this section to make it clear that he is entirely loyal to Saul, genuinely loyal. So, how does Saul respond to this? Well, in his, David is very successful in fighting for Saul, and so people start singing this song about how uh, David has slain or Saul has slain thousands, and David has slain tens of thousands. And Saul starts hearing this story, people celebrating the success of his most loyal servant. And at that point, Saul starts to get a bit uh, jealous. It says, Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. 
The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So Saul is jealous of this, his most loyal servant, and he begins to be insecure because he knows that God's rejected him, and he completely turns on David and tries to kill him. Not just the first two times, but he continues to try to kill him, and ultimately, David is forced to go on the run. David is forced to flee, and so you see that David treated Saul with complete faithfulness and loyalty, and Saul responds in the exact opposite way. Saul unjustly persecuted David and turned him into a fugitive. That's your next line here, that he unjustly persecuted David and turned him into a fugitive. Any of you experience an injustice? And how does that make you feel about the person who's done that to you? How easy is it for us to be, uh, how easy is it to hate someone who's persecuting you unjustly? Right? How, how, per, how hard is it not to take that personally, not to be completely caught up in the emotions of injustice? So it should be interesting to us to see how David responds to, in that situation. And there are so many stories here in this part of, of 1 Samuel. We get so much detail about David's time on the run that I honestly had a really hard time whittling down which part we were going to talk about next. But as it turns out, the Bible has its own ways of telling you which, which things are important. For instance, we had two stories of how Saul fell, how Saul lost the right to be king. We talked about one of them last week about how he sacrificed when he wasn't supposed to, and then today we talked about the one where he uh, didn't, didn't follow God's instructions with the Amalekites. So you get two parallel stories that tell you why Saul is not a good choice to be king. And then it turns out towards the end of this book, there are two parallel stories about David under very similar circumstances. And those stories highlight for us why David was the right person to be the new king. And so this is where we can really key in on what it was that set David apart that made him the one that God wanted to be king. And so the first story is in 1 Samuel 24. So Saul is actually out chasing David. He's got a big army chasing David and this little band. It's kind of a Robin Hood kind of thing where he's surrounded himself with his merry men, these, these outcasts and people that are following David now. And he's chasing David, and they're in an area that has a lot of caves. And David and his men are hiding in a cave. It says, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Pause. Interesting thing. God never said that to David. So his, the guys that are with him said, Hey, this is the day God, said, God told you about when he said he'd let you kill Saul. God didn't say that. <laughs> uh, you can't always trust everything people says God said to you. Afterward, David would, so then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. So he had an opportunity to kill Saul, and he had his men encouraging him to kill Saul, and he refused. 
He refused and he rebuked the men who were trying to pressure him into doing it. Do you see the difference between him and Saul and how Saul behaved in an instant when he was tempted to do something that would benefit himself and his men wanted to go along with it? He, he led them into that and then he blamed his men. David, being a true leader, resists the temptation to kill Saul and he resists the pressure from his men to do the same. There's another story in chapter 26 is where uh, David actually gets the drop on Saul. He finds Saul at camp, and he and his, one of his nephews go in to uh, sneak into camp. And <clears throat> I, they, they actually make it all the way to Saul's tent. And as they're standing over Saul, Abishai, his nephew, said to David, "'Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands.'" Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. You see that subtle dig at Saul? Because Saul tried to kill David twice with a spear. So Abishai is taking a dig at Saul right before he's about to murder him. Um, and, And also highlighting this is supposed to be justice for what Saul did to David. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So here's the the key thing that's going on here. David has, has this opportunity to do something that will make his life so much easier. It will uh, correct an injustice, at least it will feel like it, and it will remove an obstacle to him becoming king. He knows God wants him to be king. He knows God doesn't want Saul to be king. He has every reason, every temptation to take the easy way out in these circumstances. And yet, he knows that God doesn't want him to. Notice that that's what he cites every time. Saul is God's anointed, and I haven't been given permission to kill God's anointed. So he spares Saul out of obedience to God. That's the next bullet here. When David had Saul in his power, he spared him out of obedience to God. Even though it was going to make his life easier to kill Saul, even though most of us would think he would be completely justified in paying Saul back for what Saul had done to him, he knew what God wanted him to do, he knew what God didn't want him to do, and he refused to kill Saul. And the fact that he does this twice is highlighting to us the key difference between Saul and David, the key thing that God is looking for in a person's character, which seems to be a person who will obey, a person who will do what God tells them to do and will trust them enough to not take the easy way out when it's presented to them. But the question is, why is David able to do this? Why is he able to resist the temptation to take the easy way out? Well, David gives us an idea of this in what he says to to his nephew. He says in verse 10 of chapter 26, As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. He knows that God has a plan for David to become the new king. So he knows that somehow God is going to sort this out. I don't know what the details are. I don't know what the timeline is, but I know God is going to sort this out. And later, when he confronts Saul to prove to him that he, didn't, that he could have killed Saul and didn't, he says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. 
the reason why David is able to resist the temptation to, uh, to kill Saul is because he trusts God. He trusts that God will vindicate him. David trusted in God to vindicate him, even if he didn't know when or how. That is incredibly hard, to be able to trust God even when we don't know exactly what he's going to do, exactly how he's going to fulfill his plan. Because we know the the broad strokes of God's plan. What we want to know are the details, right? We want to know exactly how God is going to get us there so that we can know whether we trust that plan or not. So the hardest thing that we're called to do is trust God when we don't know how he's going to get us there. But David believed that when God gave him his word, that God would keep it. He believed that no matter how hard it got for him to be hiding in, in caves, and he had to live, live in, among the Philistines and fight for the Philistines for a while, he had to, to, he had, it was hard to get lower than where Saul made David go, right? Saul end, or David ended up in horrible places in this persecution, and yet he trusted that somehow God was going to pull him through all of that and out all of that. That's what makes the difference in David. It's one of the things. Next week, we're going to talk about another difference in David that, that shows us what God wants in his people. But for today, for the, the, his journey to the throne, what we see is that it's his willingness to obey God when it's hard and to trust that God will vindicate him. That's what he seems to be looking for. And so as we pause in the story here and we look for what we can learn about our own relationship with God. It's important for us to remember, we don't have kings anymore. We don't have, uh, and, and God's people are not reigned over by a, a king here on earth, one of us, but God has called each one of us to reign on his behalf, right? We are called to rule on God's behalf, whatever he has given us, whatever place you're at, whatever influence you have, whatever you've been given, we are called to take what we've been given and to, to use it according to God's will, So each one of us has the same kind of mission. And so as we see what God looks for in a king of Israel, that's also what he looks for in a Christian in the 21st century. That's how he wants us to handle what we've been given. So the first thing that we see, the first moral that that we find is that God wants obedience, not bribery or flattery. Often we will try to give God things other than obedience. We will try to get around actually doing what God wants. And that might be the most obvious, egregious example would be a person who thinks that if they give enough in the offering plate, then it will make up for the things they did between Sundays. I don't know how often people do that, but it, you know, that, that would be the most egregious example to think, well, I've given enough to the church, I've given enough of my time, I've given enough of my money, that it's okay that I have some fun in between, or that I, you know, the, the, I can do whatever I want in between because God and I are good. God's lucky to have me. If you ever think God's lucky to have you, you're in a very troubling spot. But I think what, what we may find is that we feel like our, I don't know, maybe closer to home would be feeling like if I worship God sincerely enough, then that will be the real measure of our relationship. You know, if I, if I preach his name loud enough, if I, if I put his symbols on enough of my clothing, if I do all these other things, then that will make up for the fact that I don't actually tend to do what he's asked me to do a lot of the time. But God is not susceptible to flattery or bribery. He doesn't actually need us or anything we can offer him. He wants us to be a part of his kingdom. He wants us to be a part of his plan, and that means we have to obey him. 
And so God wants obedience from us. Now, the thing is, determining whether you're being obedient to God, not all moments are, are created equal in terms of what they reveal about you because there are times when it's easy to follow God. There are times when it's pleasant. There are times when God's asking us to do the things we already want to do. And those moments are not really the measure because if you're only following God when you and God want the same thing, you're not necessarily following God. You just agree with him. The measure of whether or how we're obeying God is what happens when God asks you to do something you don't want to do. When God asks you to do something that's hard. When God asks you to do something that's costly. That's the measure of obedience. You know, it was really easy for Jesus to fulfill his calling when he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in the triumphal entry and everybody was celebrating. It was hard in the garden as he knew the cross that he was about to face. And that's an important moment in the story of Jesus where we see him pass this test of doing something that he, on one level, did not want to do, did not want to suffer through, and yet he said, your will, not mine. And we face that same challenge. And so obeying God means doing what is right, even when it's difficult or costly. When we face circumstances where it would be so much easier to give in to the temptation, to cut the corners, to do something bad, to create something good. We are so often tempted to try and build the kingdom of God uh, through sinful means or disobedient means. That's probably the most tempting. When you think you can do something for God by cutting a corner, by doing a little bad to create a lot of good. But those are the moments that really test us. But the last thing that the story of David reminds us of is what gives us the ability to do what God calls us to do even when it's hard. It is because we trust, we obey God because he trusts that he will vindicate his people. We trust that he will vindicate his people. We trust that on a long enough timeline, that God will restore all of us, that God will uh, even... Now, notice that David trusted in God even though he had to go into some dark places. He had to struggle with a lot of challenges. And as you see stories in the Bible, that vindication comes at different points in people's lives. Sometimes it doesn't come in the first life at all. But what we find in Scripture is that the promise of vindication uh, is offered to all of God's people. And so we know that in the end, it will have been better to obey God, even when it's hard. We know that in the end, it will have been better to follow God's plan than our own. We trust that. And the reason we trust that is because of Christmas, frankly. See, there's a song, the very first Christmas song. It's written by Mary in Luke chapter 1, and she tells us what the birth of Jesus meant to her. It says, starting in verse 50, God's mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. 
So what Mary focuses on in her song is something we don't put in many Christmas songs, which is the fact that the birth of Jesus proves that God is vindicating his people. The fact that God chose to send his son to be born to a poor family in a poor town in a poor province of the Roman Empire, the fact that he fulfilled all of those promises through this child proves that God really is working to vindicate his people, that he really is working to ensure that good triumphs. God doesn't send his son on a failed mission, and he doesn't send his son on an unimportant mission. When a son of God shows up among us in a feeding trough, in a poor family, in a place that didn't do him any favors, that it wasn't a pleasant excursion on the earth, what that proves to us is that God is vindicating his people. And that's what Mary saw, that this changes everything, that this proves that we can trust what God is doing. This was not an idle promise. This is not something that God forgot about. God will vindicate his people. And so the message of Christmas gives us courage. It gives us strength um, to be like David, to do what is right, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, because we know that in the end, no matter what else happens, it will have been better to obey God than to cut corners. As we close, I'm going to ask you to consider whether God is calling you to take a next step, what that next step may look like. The most important next step you could be considering is to give your life to Jesus. And if that's where, uh, that's where you're at, today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus. And if you're watching with us online, we encourage you to get a hold of a Christian that you trust, um, get a hold of the church office, talk to, to someone, and we would love to walk you through that. Um, if there's a Christian that you trust, you can want, talk to them. Um, but today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus and give your life over to his purposes and to, to step into this story and to trust that what God has for your life is better than what you have for your life. If you're looking for a church home, we, consider, we encourage you to um, sign up for our Connect class. This is a, we do this on a Sunday afternoon when you can find out more about the church, who we are, and what we do, and how you can get connected. And then we also have a couple other ways for you to go deeper in your process of following Jesus, either by joining a small group, which is where we uh, develop relationships with each other and, and come alongside each other to, uh, to help each other with this challenge of doing what is right and of being obedient to God. And also joining a service team, which gives you an opportunity to, to do good for others, to serve people in our church and people in our community. If you're interested in any of those options, I'd encourage you to check that box on your connection card, which if you're here, you have in your bulletin, but if you're online, you can find that on our digital sanctuary in the link at the bottom of this video. So as we sing our final song, I encourage you to consider what next step is God calling you to take?